welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are tackling a Christie classic. The Hollow! A Poirot novel. It's a Poirot. Yes, yeah. I know. Um, so, <laughs> why don't you, I know. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the publication of this Kemper? So, The Hollow was first published in book form in the U.S. by Dodd Mead in 1946, and in November of the same year by, of course, Collins Crime Club in the U.K. And it was actually first serialized in shortened form in Collier's Weekly in the U.S. in May 1946, and that was shortly before it was published in book form by Dodd Mead. And that was under the title The Outraged Heart. And I actually know that Christy herself was very miffed about being forced to shorten it, and she talks about having sent back the manuscript suitably mutilated. That was the phrase that she used. (laughs) Also, weirdly, it was republished in the U.S. in paperback in 1954 with yet another title, Murder After Hours. And you know what? I actually have three more alternate titles for your pleasure, Catherine Brobeck. Please Um, do tell. These are coming from, of course, our friend John Kern, who often digs up these alternate titles in Agatha Christie's Notebooks, which is what he has written about to brilliant effect in two different volumes. And uh, apparently there were three working titles that Christie used while she was formulating this one, Tragic Weekend, Return Journey, and Echo. And echo is actually another standout word from the Alfred Lord Tennyson poem from which the actual title, The Hollow, comes. And uh, I wonder if you would like to read out that poem right now, Catherine. You know what? I shall. Poirot quotes it uh, directly in the book. Uh, It's from a poem called Maud, a monodrama. It is very long. (laughs) Um, unsurprisingly, given that it's Alfred Lord Tennyson. Mm. But the opening stanza of it, which is what Poirot quotes, uh, says, I hate the dreadful hollow behind the the little wood. Its lips in the field above are dabbled with blood-red heath. The red-ribbed ledges drip with a silent horror of blood and echo there. Whatever is asked her answers death. Mm. And we don't always cover Christie's dedications because there's one per book and there's a lot to cover. But this is a little bit of a curious one. Um, it reads as follows for Larry and Danae with apologies for using their swimming pool as the scene of a murder. And given the fact that the setting is very important here, I just think it's really interesting that this was an actual swimming pool. Christie was friends with a Mr. and Mrs. Francis L. Sullivan, more familiarly known as Larry Sullivan, who actually portrayed Poirot in Christie's first original play of Poirot, Black Coffee, all the way back in 1930. And she went to stay with them. And uh, this is what Larry Sullivan says about how the hollow came to be. At the back of the house, my wife, in a moment of insane optimism of the English weather, had caused a swimming pool to be made with half a dozen paths leading down to it through the chestnut wood. One fine Sunday morning, I discovered Agatha wandering up and down these paths with an expression of intense concentration. This is one book where setting is, I'd say, at the forefront, especially for Christie. And I think the book is better for that. So I just thought that was interesting. Catherine Brobeck, tell us about the victim of The Hollow. It's Dr. John Christo, who is a highly respected Harley Street physician. 
<laughs> who is shot to death while visiting his friends at uh, their country estate, The Hollow. All right, let's go through our list of suspects. We are in the country. We are at an estate, so we have a closed circle mystery here. And they are as follows. Gerda Christo, that would be John Christo's meek, dumb, doting wife, who is found over his body holding a gun. Then we have Henrietta Savernick, who is Christo's lover and a famous sculptor. And she's also the cousin of our next suspect, Lady Lucy Angatel, who is the Lady of the Hollow and a loopy, if very quick-witted, bright, eccentric. And who is she married to, Kemper? She is married to Sir Henry Angatel, who is a highly respected retired British civil servant and a distant cousin himself of Lucy. Basically, all of these people are are cousins (laughs) to each other. Yeah, they are. More or less. Next up, we have Edward Ancatel, who is another cousin. And he is the owner of Ainsworth, which is the Ancatel family's beloved estate, which went to him when Lucy's father died. So it's a little bit of this odd situation wherein Lucy grew up at Ainsworth, but no longer lives there. Edward now lives there. And Edward has been in love with Henrietta for most of his life, uh, starting when he would visit Ainsworth with his cousin Henrietta, along with another cousin. And who would that be, Catherine? Midge Hardcastle. And she's much younger than them, and she's from a much poorer side of the family. So going to Ainsworth was this Eden for her. It was Arcadia, you know. Now she's basically a put-upon high-end shop girl at a boutique in London. And then the final cousin is David Ancatel, and he is a sullen leftist who resents the family's money. Ah, yes, one of those angry young socialists we see so often in Christie. Um, Socialist, though he may be, he is indeed the current heir and will inherit unless Edward marries and has a son. Right. Then we have Veronica Cripe. I like that she's described as um, an intellectual actress. And uh, she... She has opinions on Strindberg. (laughs) Yes, she does. A lot of them. She's been off in Hollywood. Then it turns out, guess what? She was also once engaged to John Christo. And uh, now she is conveniently living down the road from the hollow in a cottage called Dubcoats. I just have to mention, by the way, that when she is referenced as a highbrow actress, I believe it's Inspector Grange, who is our inspector protagonist working along with Poirot. And he says, uh, you know, forget these highbrow women. Give me Hedy Lamar any day. And Which is so funny, given what Hedy Lamar actually was. Hedy Lamar is an inventor. Hedy Lamar invented like a radio jamming technology that helped in the war, among a lot of other things. Like that was the worst actress to pick. <laughs> I know. Anyway, last on our suspect list, we have Gudgeon. One of the better butler names we've come across. Uh, No, it's such an unfortunate one. (laughs) Gudgeon. He is the loyal butler at the Hollow who appears to know more about everything than he lets on because let's never underestimate the help. No, and to be clear, there is also... There are other staff. Yeah. yeah. And to be fair to Christy, too, there are many references made to the fact that it is very unusual that the Ancatels have as many servants as they do. Because we are in, at this point, heading into the late 40s, and it would have been unusual. So it's a bit of a throwback, but she's very much aware of that, too. Well, and also, I mean, we can just point it out here because we've already read the poem. It's that because Lucy Angatel did not inherit her beloved Ainsworth, the hollow is essentially an echo 
of what Ainsworth was when she was a girl. That's partially the reason they have so many servants. Absolutely. The world as it appears to be Lady Lucy Angatel, eccentric crazy person that she is, is busy fretting at her home, the hollow, over the fact that she is not looking forward to the weekend because she's invited all the wrong people. And I was immediately getting towards zero vibes myself. Absolutely. Catherine. And that will be a running theme. Yeah. Running theme. (laughs) Very towards zero. But I would argue this is the better towards zero in almost all important ways. And Lucy is concerned that all the guests will not get along and that she should have thought it through better. The only thing that she has in the agenda to break up the party, which is giving her comfort, is an invitation to lunch the following day, which she has extended to their local crime expert who's been living down the lane, but who the Angatels know from when Sir Henry was stationed in Baghdad. And we can gather from this and also from the fact that we're reading a Poirot novel that this personage is Hercule Poirot, even though he has not actually been named. Been named, right. But it's nice because we're at least getting the reference very early on, and we know he's a coming. <laughs> yes, we do. And we know why. Yeah. Which sometimes it's less than clear how these people know him, but it's, it's laid out very well immediately. Absolutely. In London, we meet Dr. John Christo, and we get quite a glimpse into his inner thoughts. You know, as mentioned earlier, he is this highly respected Harley Street women's doctor, known for how kind and soothing and reassuring he is with his patients. But in his head, he pretty much hates all of them. He thinks it's a bunch of rich hypochondriacs. He thinks they're all morons. He only does it for the money because his real interest, he has all these interests in curing disease, etc. Particularly, he's interested in finding a cure for Ridgeway's disease. And he's been experimenting with varying degrees of success on poor, actually sick women at St. Christopher's, particularly his favorite patient, Mrs. Crabtree. And, you know, she's a fighter and wants to live and, like, is his favorite test subject. For the record, Ridgway's disease is not real, but it appears from how it's described to be some kind of degenerative neurological condition, like some sort of variation of fibromyalgia, MS, Sjogren's, something like that, don't you think? Absolutely. And um, funnily enough, in her notebooks at one point, Christy was referring to Dr. Christo as Dr. Ridgway. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> and I believe that Ridgway is also the last name of Lynette Ridgway, right? In mm-hmm. Death on the Nile. So, you know, I think that perhaps she realized, oh, I can't, I can't use that as an actual character name here, but I can just tack it on for the name of the disease. So many names, so much time when you're writing 66 mystery novels. So I, I feel her on that. <laughs> That, but, not to um, mention all the short stories. Not to mention all the short stories. So we meet uh, Dr. Christo's wife and son and daughter. The son and daughter are pretty young. And we discover that Gerda, his wife, is fretful and seemingly idiotic. <laughs> she right. can't make up her mind about food timing or about packing or giving directions to the servants because they're about to leave for this weekend at the hollow. But she does think that her husband, John, is God's gift to mankind. John, suffice it to say, finds this rather irritating, all of this obvious hero worship. And he finds it even more irritating because he happens to be in an intense relationship with... Henrietta, who is wealthy and smart and fabulously talented as this modern sculptor. And she's very fond of John. And he comes to her studio whenever he can possibly find a minute to, yes, have a physical affair with her. And surprisingly, it's made pretty clear that they're, this is not just some emotional affair, but they're physically 
involved. I have to say, I mean, this is the quote unquote sexiest Christie that we've read since Five Little Pigs. And there is there is a lot of the physical expression of love in this story. They're equally driven in their pursuits. They're, mm-hmm. They really are a perfect intellectual match for each other. But in some ways, that actually doesn't work for John because <laughs> he's a chauvinist in how he approaches his relationships. And I do just want to say before we move on to The Hollow, which we are about to go to for our weekend, that... You know, in Sparkling Cyanide, we mentioned how strong the opening chapters of that novel were in which the characters were introduced. And it was striking to me reading The Hollow right after that, how we had something similar here. The opening of this book is very strong, the establishment of these characters. And it was one of those instances where what stuck with me in this book from decades earlier had nothing yet again to do with the plot or anything to do with the mystery of this book. It had to do with these character moments in the beginning of the book. I 100% remember Lucy Angatel ruining a, a tea kettle out of just absent-mindedness. I 100% remember Henrietta Savernake destroying her art sculpture because she realized it wasn't as perfect as she thought it was. And I really remembered Gerda dithering over that piece of mutton and not knowing if she should bring, you know, put it back or heat it up or not, and it getting congealed. And if anything, that is the object that stuck. She's establishing deep, well-rounded, complex characters here in the opening chapters, and I think she's still writing at the height of her powers here. So we finally convene at the Hollow, where Henrietta is immediately dragged on a walk by her cousin Edward, who, per his usual habit, once again confesses his undying love for Henrietta. She has previously rejected his marriage proposals three times, (laughs) and he then confronts her as to the real problem here i.e. it's not him, it's not even her, it's John Christo. Because Edward is very much aware that Henrietta is having an affair with John and that she is in love with him. And we also learn that poor Midge, who's sitting on the sidelines, is equally distressed because she carries a flame for Edward. And she knows that he will never love her so long as he is still in love with Henrietta. And then on top of that, John and Gerda show up. And this all results in an exceedingly awkward dinner. And then even more awkward drinks and a bridge game. And somehow, remarkably, after all this, it could still get more awkward because there's a knock at the parlor door and in comes Veronica Cray, famous actress and neighbor down the lane at Dovecoats. And she has apparently run out of matches, of all things, and has come to introduce herself and ask if she might take some matches. She, though swiftly recognizes John and, uh, you know, is tremendously shocked. Oh my gosh, fancy meeting you here. Because, you know, they were once engaged and she has not seen him in years. And after she gets over her tremendous surprise, she insists that he walk her home. And he does. Not getting back to the hollow until 3 a.m. I guess someone <laughs> was doing a little bit more than talking over dovecoats. Here, too, it is, I don't even want to say implied, it's practically stated that they have sex. It's not quite stated, but any adult reader will know. Outside of directly saying it, 
She does everything possible to make it clear. It's actually impressive how clear she makes it without stating they had sex. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. That being said, I'm not sure it was clear to me when I read it as long ago as I did. When I, I, (laughs) I actually know for a fact that I was in the fourth grade. This is one of the few novels I can pinpoint when I first read it. And I'll tell you why in a little bit. So stay tuned for that. A little bit of suspense injecting in there. But I think that innocent fourth grade Kemper may not have realized that John and Veronica were getting it on here. In any case, John realizes after coming back from this tryst that he, in fact, loves his life as it is. He was just briefly dazzled by the memory of Veronica. She is actually a controlling, soulless egomaniac. Again, they were sort of equal matches and and it didn't work. This seems to be a pattern in John Christo's relations. Right. Um, And perhaps is why he and Gerda actually do work well as a married pair. So he gets back in to his room seemingly without incident. Gerda is asleep. She sort of wakes up, but she, you know, her voice is sleepy. She seems officially out of it. She asks what time it is and he says he doesn't know. She goes back to sleep and he breathes a sigh of relief, happily getting into bed. Until the next morning. When he is sent a note from Veronica to see her at once. So he goes back there and she essentially begs and pleads with him to leave his wife and come back to her. And he refuses and she immediately turns on him. And yeah, then she basically tells him how much she hates him and that he will regret this. John heads back to the hollow, distressed. And rather than go back into the house, he loiters by the pool, uh, contemplating what he's supposed to do. Finally, he gets up to go into the house, and as he turns, he gasps in surprise as an unseen-to-the-reader person shoots him. Yeah, it's a very unusual sequence of events for a Christie mystery novel because it's very real time. Mm-hmm. I mean, usually the murders are a, are at a bit more of a remove. Often it's after the fact, right? We're, we're coming upon or seeing right. a victim or even just being told about a victim. But we see him get murdered, <laughs> right. which is pretty interesting. So meanwhile, Poirot is fretting in his cottage down the lane, which is called Rest Haven. Because yes, Poirot has a cottage in this book. But as our friend John Curran notes... There is never any other reference to this cottage of Poirot's in the country (laughs) in any other book or story. And it is slightly out of character for Poirot to have this little country cottage. He does does mention that it's out of character, but that he had essentially been convinced to do it. Yeah, it's it's a little weird, though. Christy just needed him there. But let's move on. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe he was going to grow some vegetables again. Maybe. Poirot walks from Rest Haven over to the Hollow for his lunch invite, and he's annoyed about getting his shoes dirty because it's Poirot. And once he gets to the house, he's escorted out to the pool by Gudgeon, much to his disgust for pre-lunch cocktails, only to walk onto a scene of John Christo lying on his back, dripping red liquid into the pool. There's Gerda standing above him holding a gun. Lady Lucy is standing on one side with a basket of eggs in her hand. Henrietta standing on a different side, having come in from a different path, apparently, with wildflowers. Uh, And then Sir Henry and Edward are coming over from yet another path leading to the pool, having been hunting. And Poirot is annoyed because it seems like this is a staged murder mystery done on his behalf. Or so he thinks until he walks over to John Christo. When he gets closer, he realizes that that red paint that he thinks is dripping into the pool is in fact blood. And in fact, John Christo is on the verge of death. And before John finally expires, he manages to look in the direction of Poirot and the rest of the gathered people and loudly say, Henrietta, 
before dying. When I was in fourth grade, we had to do diorama projects. Did you ever mm-hmm. have to make a diorama in a shoebox? Uh, yes, I did. Of course. Of course. What elementary school kid <laughs> did not have to do that? I did a diorama of the pool murder scene from The Hollow in fourth grade, which is a pretty solid scene for a diorama because it is very explicitly described and like it is a moment, you know? Did Again, you make like little like Play-Doh figures? Of I think I the- did it with construction paper or something and just taped it. I, I Art was never, never my thing. I am not a Henrietta Savernake, that is for sure. But back to the plot, Henrietta pulls herself together and Gerda is still shaking with a gun in her hand. So Henrietta tentatively approaches her, asks to take the gun, and then Poirot turns, startles her, and then Henrietta, whoops, drops the gun into the pool. The women basically are all sent into the house. Naturally, the police are called, and the party is soon joined by Inspector Grange. In the house during all this, the women take Gerda upstairs to bed as they speculate how you treat a woman who has just murdered her husband. And they have a very explicit conversation about this. So here's perhaps where we should issue a pretty big warning about our discussion moving forward. We are not really dealing with a puzzle mystery here, and we will talk more about that when we discuss the book more holistically in our rankings. But we are currently somewhere between a third and a halfway through this book by the time Inspector Grange shows up and the investigation begins. And for reasons that will become clear very shortly, everything that happens in this investigation is going to be largely irrelevant when it comes to the world as it actually is. So for the sake of time, and because the most interesting aspect of this discussion is going to be the characters and their psychology and how they're interacting, and Christy, based on her own comments, I I think would very much be in agreement with that statement, we are going to gloss over a lot of the plot in this second half of the book, especially as pertains to the investigation. So gloss away, Catherine. Okay, I'm going to take a deep breath, Kemper. Here are some facts about the investigation. Nobody in the house has a solid alibi because everyone was separated. The gun, fished out of the pool, now with no fingerprints, comes from Sir Henry's collection and had been shot by everyone in the house at target practice the day before. Also, it wasn't the gun that killed John. Surprise! We also find out that Veronica left her furs in the pool pavilion. Also in the pool pavilion is a drawing of a tree that was at Ainsworth, which was drawn by Henrietta. Gudgeon was seen in the hall of the house with a gun, and then he polished the gun and put it back in Sir Henry's collection. But really, it was Lady Lucy's gun that she'd absentmindedly put in her egg-gathering basket for reasons unclear other than... That's just the kind of thing that Lucy does. Gudgeon, when he found it, realized what Lucy had done. So that's also why he took care to put it back. And also, by the way, it doesn't matter because it wasn't the right caliber anyway. So Sir Henry, upon further investigation of his gun collection, also realizes that another gun is missing. That one, nobody knows where it is. So all of these quote-unquote facts are essentially what has been uncovered in Grange's investigation. And as you might notice... None of those seem very helpful, do they? No, they do not. So we are going to now go through some clues of our own making (laughs) and thereby bridge our way over to the world as it actually is in a resolution to this mystery. And as we mentioned before, this is not a puzzle mystery, which is why these clues, there are a few of them and we think they're interesting, but they are going to provide an incomplete bridge. So we will have to do some hopping by way of narrative description even after we go through these. Clue number 
number one, the too many clues clue. And that's a Christie trope. You know, it's hard to get one clue in a case, but a ton of clues such as Catherine just went through, especially all of which seem to lead in different promising yet ultimately dead end directions. The deduction an astute reader should be making here is that these clues were purposely laid in and around the hollow as red herrings. We saw this very specifically in Poirot's short story, The Double Clue, with Countess Vera Rosikoff. We saw it in Murder on the Orient Express. We also saw it very recently in Toward Zero. So that's another major similarity that this book has to that one. We should both discount a lot of the clues that we're coming across and wonder why it is that someone or some group of people perhaps uh, would like to misdirect the investigators of this crime. Which leads to clue number two, which is Poirot's gut instinct. He immediately thinks that that scene by the pool is staged. You know, obviously we immediately find out that no, John is actually dying. But even though he's actually dead, Poirot cannot shake that initial feeling that something seemed theatrical about the tableau as presented. And so our deduction, obviously, is never doubt Poirot's little gray cells. If he thinks something is staged, the overwhelming odds here are that it was staged. So the question becomes how and why and by whom? Right. Within the book, Poirot says to Grange, but the eyes, Inspector Grange, are very unreliable witnesses. The eyes see sometimes what they are meant to see, i.e. eyewitness testimony can be faulty, don't necessarily trust the senses alone. There needs to be logic and reason behind it. And then clue number three, which is a bit of a meta clue, my favorite kind of a clue, because this comes from having read as many previous Christie's as closely as we all have at this point. But there is a very favorite Christie trope of hers that we've seen her use so many times. And that is the double bluff. You know, she talked about this in her autobiography, and I believe even in other places, but she loved the idea of presenting a reader with an obvious suspect, and then proving beyond a doubt that that obvious suspect couldn't have done it. And then by the end, showing, oh, Nope. In fact, that very obvious person did, in fact, do it. And she did that with her very first book. She did that in The Mysterious Affair at Styles. She did it to great effect in The Murder at the Vicarage. And given that we are— Witness for the prosecution. Witness for the prosecution. Given that we are presented with a very obvious— suspect here in our staging. It's the wife. You know, we always suspect a husband or a wife, and she's holding a gun over a dead body. And then we are shown that, oh, no, there's no way she could have possibly done it. I think an astute reader would at at the very least be very, very suspicious of Gerda Cristo. Right. Let's get to our resolution, Catherine. Well, just to quickly mention a B-plot, because it actually takes up a lot of pages. (laughs) Sorry, Kemper, but it takes up a pretty large amount of real estate in this book. But Midge is working as a shop girl in London, which uh, we'll get to it, but cue some anti-Semitism. Edward goes up to check on her. He doesn't really think that she should be working, frankly. But uh, he's appalled by her treatment in the shop. And so he takes her to lunch. And then he decides during that lunch to ask her to marry him. So they immediately go pick out a engagement ring, although not an emerald, because the only thing that he can associate with the color green is his great love, Henrietta. And believe me when I say that Midge notices this, but she goes along. 
and she accepts and she goes back with him to the hollow for Lucy and Henry's blessing and for wedding planning. Um, unfortunately, Henrietta also returns to the hollow and seeing Edward's unresolved feelings towards Henrietta really breaks Midge's heart and she calls off the engagement. She tries to give the ring back. Edward won't take it because he'll never give it to anybody else. And then Edward puts his head in a gas oven to kill himself. He almost dies, but Midge, sensing that something is wrong, goes down to the kitchen, finds him, drags him out, and as he's coming out of the gas haze, he sees her and realizes how great she is. They both realize that, in fact, they do love each other, they want to get married, they want to live at Ainsworth, and all of a sudden, the wedding is back on, and this has been your two-minute aside, because it has virtually nothing to do with the rest of the plot. So... Back to that mystery, Poirot gets a visit from Inspector Grange, complaining that they still haven't found the weapon that was actually used to kill John. And while Grange is talking, Poirot isn't even really paying attention, and he's studying the hedges in front of his cottage, and he notices a discrepancy in their perfect symmetry, because this is Poirot. Needless to say, that discrepancy is there because someone's put the murder weapon, the missing gun, right in Poirot's hedge. Of course they have. And when they check fingerprints, though, it is unfortunately another dead end, because the uh, fingerprints don't match with anyone who who is being investigated or who is involved in any way with the murder and the ongoing investigation. But back at the hollow, we find that Lady Lucy, in addition to still putting on more kettles that she's going to burn, she's fretting about a variety of things. And as her mind sort of switches subjects, she uh, realizes that she had something that she needed to tell somebody because she wonders if, quote unquote, she thought of that. And so she wanders down the hall to Henrietta's room and mentions to Henrietta that she wonders if, quote unquote, she thought of the fact that the missing gun came with a holster. Henrietta immediately takes off in her car, heading to, where <gasps> is she heading, Hemper? Gerda's sister's house, where Gerda is staying in the aftermath of John's death. And Henrietta point blank asks Gerda what she did with the holster. And Gerda calmly explains that she cut it up and put it in with her leather scraps bag that she uses for crafting. <laughs> and Henrietta asks her to give it to her to get rid of. And Gerda says, okay, and, and she brings tea in, you know, nice little social call. And as Henrietta is about to drink, Poirot shows up, having followed Henrietta by a hired car the second he saw her bolting away from the hollow. He also made a very good guess as to where she was going. This is not a shock to him. And he tells her not to drink the tea. Gerda comes back and sits down and picks up, you know, her kappa. And more or less, you know, we've had the whole situation then explained. Namely, she was very much aware that John, her beloved John, who she worshipped blindly to the point where, and this is a running theme in this, Henrietta has crafted a very spooky sculpture called The Worshipper, which John immediately recognizes as Gerda, except the sculpture doesn't have a face. All it has is this shape of a woman blindly, like literally blindly, because she has no face, looking up at somebody with utter devotion. Gerda realizes that she's been cheated on with Veronica Cray and figures that John is still in love with her, this glamorous actress. And Gerda could not believe that her perfect saint would be so awful and this horrible duplicitous liar and she couldn't deal with it and also by the way she's not quite as stupid as everyone thinks she is so she stole two guns from sir henry 
one that she used to shoot John and then hide as fast as she can. And then another one that she would hold over him so that when everybody showed up, it would look as though she did it. When in reality, the second that they tested the gun, they'd realize it was not in fact the gun that shot John. And as a result, she would not possibly be suspected of actually having shot him. As we're going through this, whatever, she sips her tea, realizes that she doesn't feel very well, her lips turn purple, and then she dies. So poor Henrietta more or less says to Poirot that she's shocked that Gerda committed suicide before Poirot gently tells her, uh, no, that poison was for Henrietta. Gerda actually just tried to murder you. Because did Poirot switch the cups? There are two cups on the tray, and she just takes the one that had been Henrietta's that he's put back on the tray. I'm a little bit of the mind that Poirot kind of knew it was going to happen. He says, no, no, mademoiselle, I did not know that there was anything in your teacup. I only knew that there might be. And when the cup was on the tray, it was an even chance she drank from that or the other, if you call it chance. I say myself that an end such as this is merciful for her and for two innocent children. Because we know that Poirot is all about the innocent, so apparently he wanted both their father and mother to not be alive. This is not actually the first time Poirot has convinced a murderous mother to kill herself. It's interesting. I mean, Poirot and his extra-legal machinations, this is very on-brand for him. But Henrietta's horrified because she had been trying to help Gerda, even though she, she in fact knew that Gerda had killed John. And then we get the actual explanation of what has been going on here, which is that John's dying word, Henrietta, was directed at Henrietta, as he knew that she would intuitively know what he meant, which was that, yes, Gerda killed him, but he didn't want her hanged, and he was relying on Henrietta to fix things for him, so she immediately did, thinking the gun in in Gerda's hand was the murder weapon, because, of course, she thought that. She accidentally dropped it in the pool to wash away the fingerprints, and then when it was clear that that wasn't the gun, she went hunting for the real gun, which she found just before Inspector Grange's men did. Gerda had put it in a pretty obvious hiding place in and around the pool in the shrubbery there. Henrietta put the gun in her belongings, took it back to London, and then she caged it up in the frame of a sculpture that she made of a horse, which Inspector Grange's men noted as being extremely ugly. And Poirot figured out what she did because he thought that it was a subconscious move on her part to make the sculpture a horse, i.e. a Trojan horse that was containing something significant. And then Henrietta eventually took it out and had the blind man selling matchsticks on her corner touch it. Those are the um, fingerprints that were found on the gun that no one could match with anything when it was discovered in Poirot's bushes, which is where Henrietta, in fact, hit it. And why did she do all this? Because she loved John, and he asked her to do it with his dying breath. And the rest of the family, who love Henrietta and are just a very close-knit group of people, realized what she was doing and helped. And that's why Poirot and Inspector Grange have been confounded at pretty much every turn. And I also have to say this, this was such an unusual denouement for a Christie novel. There's nothing dramatic about it. This is all happening in a house with the murderer and one other person, and the murderer's dead for most of the scene. Right. And it's all very quiet and sad and interesting and unusual. Well, yeah, and I mean, the the best thing is that the scene ends. Poirot basically says, you know, your job is to go on being alive, and I will stay here with the dead. And so he sends her away so that she has nothing to do when the police come and find 
Gerda. And then what does she do once she is free? Well, she has a moment where she does seem to sort of despair, but then she realizes that there is one very obvious person who she has to go see in the aftermath of John Christo's death, and that is Mrs. Crabtree, the woman suffering from Ridgeway's disease who John felt this connection to because she had a zest for life that equaled his own. They have a nice conversation, and Mrs. Crabtree at one point, I believe, notes how good-looking he was <laughs> in a sort of right. way, and it's all very body and zestful, as we would expect from Mrs. Right. Crabtree. Right, Mrs. Crabtree's like, we're not the wife, right? Yeah, yeah, she's sort of like, <laughs> she she can tell that there was something going on between the two of them. And then Henrietta goes back to her studio and thinks back to John telling her, you know, you don't really care about me because of her ability to compartmentalize and her passion for art. If I died, you wouldn't even more me, you would just start working on a piece of art. And she realizes that that is exactly what she needs and wants to do. She starts visualizing this idea for a sculpture called Grief, and she's going to channel her emotions into that. And, you know, the novel ends on this note of her apologizing to John for not being able to just sit and grieve like a normal lover. And on that bittersweet note, this very unusual and I would say masterful Christie novel ends. It's a odd note to end on, but I liked it. It's a very odd note to end on. I would argue the character of Henrietta is very much based on Agatha. I think there are so many things that they have in common. And this might be a little bit of a stretch, but I almost felt like that apology that she was making to John was a little bit of the apology that Agatha could have made at several points in her life to her own daughter. I'm sorry that I'm so driven by this and that this art writing for her obviously consumes me, but I just can't help it. It's just who I am. And we do know actually that uh, Rosalind was a big fan of this book and she was not a big fan of all of her books either. No, (laughs) but it's, yeah, apparently mentioned a number of times about how much she liked this book. Yeah. Well, that is actually, believe it or not, a good segue into the theatrical and other adaptations for this novel because... Not surprisingly, Christie has a delightful account in her autobiography of how the theatrical adaptation of The Hollow came to be. And here is what she says. It came to me suddenly one day that The Hollow would make a good play. I said so to Rosalind, who has had the valuable role in life of eternally trying to discourage me without success. Making a play of The Hollow, mother, said Rosalind in horror. It's a good book and I like it, but you can't possibly make it into a play. Yes, I can, I said, stimulated by opposition. Oh, I wish you wouldn't, said Rosalind, sighing. And then, of course, she did. And actually, you know, we often talk about Christie's plays not doing nearly as well as her books. And I don't want to say that the theatrical adaptation of The Hollow was as successful as the novel. We haven't read it. We haven't seen it be performed. But it did actually do well. It ran in London on the West End for 11 months, 376 performances. And it was produced by Peter Saunders, who was a producer Agatha Christie would go on to have a really productive relationship with because the next play that they would work on together would be The Mousetrap. I also suspect that the reason why The Hollow made such a good play was like not only the fact that the mise-en-scene, right, of the pool is is just transpose that onto a stage, and that's that's a very powerful scene, obviously, but I'm sure that Lady Lucy was a fantastic character for the stage, right? You know, her energy and her one-liners that she's constantly reeling off, I could see her being transposed pretty easily to the stage for a Christie character, kind of like a, a Lady Bracknell in The Importance of Being Earnest, or even um, Madame 
Arcati, who we talked about. Yeah, I was in our Patreon episode. About, I was literally about to say she's like a Noel Coward character. Yeah. Yes, we did. We did touch on Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit in our latest Patreon episode having to do with the floating admiral. This play is probably most famous for the fact that Christy excised Poirot from it. <laughs> As she had a tendency to do. That's the thing. The I mean, at this yeah. point, we know that she had a tendency to do that because she felt like Poirot just overwhelmed the other characters. And on a stage, it was it was hard to develop other characters if he was there. Well, I'm also not entirely clear about how, if this is apocryphal or not, but apparently Peter Saunders picked up the play because it was having a hard time getting produced because I guess uh, some people didn't think it was so great. Yeah, there was another producer, Bertie Meyer, who had been backing Christie's plays as early as Alibi in 1928, which is, of course, the theatrical version of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, the one where Caroline Shepard was aged down and made sexy, which made her so <laughs> angry that she then was like, a dark marble is going to rise and, and rule the world. <laughs> yeah, he was dragging his heels on this production. And you know what? <laughs> Bertie Meyer was Jewish. So he may not have been the biggest fan of the hollow and I can't say I blame him for that. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that we'll get in there. a minute. Yeah. We'll there. But yeah, Peter Saunders had success staging, staging an adaptation of Murder at the Vicarage, apparently by titling it Agatha Christie's Murder at the Vicarage. Which right. is why a lot of people went, and Christy loved that, and she loved his sort of ambition and go-getter style, so she removed the play from Bertie Meyer, gave it to Peter Saunders, and then he he made it a success, and it had this long run. And also really interestingly, and I'm getting this from our good friend Mark Aldridge, in 1951, scenes from this play were performed on the radio, and... Per Mark, later attempts to broadcast an original radio adaptation wouldn't come to fruition due to the unavailability of rights. So it seems that the stage production of The Hollow made doing a radio play version of it impossible. And we recently came across this oddity in our Patreon episode in which we discussed all of the BBC radio plays. There is no John Moffat version of The Hollow. He did almost all the others, and it seems like such an odd one to leave out since The Hollow is so loved. But perhaps this is why. It's just a licensing issue that the rights for the radio play just aren't available and haven't been since Christie did the theatrical version. I thought that was interesting. The main adaptation that we have to discuss is our beloved David Suchet's adaptation. And this happened in season slash series nine. It was one of four episodes that season. The other three being Sad Cypress, Five Little Pigs, and Death on the Nile. So that was quite a big season. I know. Um, And And a bunch of uh, similarities between all of those, weirdly. So many similarities. I mean, we will be talking a lot more about the comparisons to be made between Sad Cypress and Five Little Pigs in a moment, but I totally agree. And this is obviously one of those seasons where each adaptation was a standalone feature film and very much felt that way. And they were casting the heck out of it as much as possible. Sir Henry is actually played by the Watson from the ITV Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes series, Edward Hardwick. (laughs) who's just a a very well-respected older actor. He and Suchet were really old and good friends. And Suchet talks in his book about being able to chat with him. I thought it was good. I actually don't think it's one of the stronger of the Suchet adaptations, if I'm being perfectly honest. I think a big part of the reason why it doesn't measure up is that Henrietta is such a central part to the story. And I didn't feel like the Henrietta on the screen captured the Henrietta on the page. She was really arch- She was really distant. 
She seemed very cold and almost cruel. Yeah, whereas the Henriette in the book, one of my favorite details is really early on, Midge and Lucy are talking about how Gerda um, was wearing an absolutely hideous green sweater that she had knitted because, as we mentioned, she is very crafty. Maybe not so good at the crafts, um, (laughs) but very crafty. And Henrietta did what Henrietta always did. And she very kindly sat with Gerda and made her more comfortable and asked her about the sweater and, you know, asked her about the pattern. And, you know, Lucy kind of makes a joke about it. And Midge says to Lucy, well, no, Henrietta got the pattern and Henrietta made the sweater and Henrietta wore the sweater. Catherine, I literally wrote in my notes for this adaptation, this is not the Henrietta who went through with knitting Gerda's terrible sweater. (laughs) Jinx, Kemper. It doesn't capture the complexity of Henrietta. And if you don't have that, I think it's hard to pull off the story. So let's move on to our rankings and start with plot mechanics. Per Agatha Christie herself, she says that this was, of course, in some ways rather more of a novel than a detective story. And John Curran, I think, puts it even more powerfully. He writes, The Hollow is almost a Mary Westmacott title. It resembles a straight novel more than a detective story, and indeed has less in the way of clues and detection than almost any other Poirot title. That is 100% true, and I find it helpful to reference both Five Little Pigs and Sad Cypress, because I think that those are two other novels in which Christie was writing at the height of her powers. They're both excellent. Obviously, Five Little Pigs is our number one novel, so we think it is quite excellent. I think that those novels feature a lot of the same psychological complexity and layering that we see Mm -hmm. here. But the thing is, those novels, and especially Five Little Pigs, also managed to infuse their stories with a functional puzzle mystery. And we were never going to argue, I think, that The Hollow is better than Five Little Pigs. It is certainly not going to rank higher than Five Little Pigs. But I think it's interesting to compare it to Sad Cypress because she's doing less in The Hollow where she's sort of dispensing with the puzzle mystery. But I think you could make the argument that she's actually doing the psychological layering much better here. So it's like she's doing less, but she's doing it better. <laughs> I mean, sparkling cyanide, same thing. We get the introduction of the characters, and then when they have to be shoehorned into a puzzle mystery, you know, it doesn't fall apart, but it ends with a whimper. And I wouldn't go that far here. I mean, like I said, I do think that the resolution, the way that it plays out with Poirot chasing Henrietta to Gerda's house and this confession slash recounting of everything that happens, I do think it's really interesting and compelling. But the first half of the book is certainly a lot better than the second half. Agreed. Although, again, I like the ending of this. So it's not that the plotting is bad. It's not that the plotting is faulty. I can't really poke holes in anything. It's just that I think sometimes, especially when we're having the conversation about plot mechanics versus plot credibility, we talk about how one category is often at the expense of the other. There are certainly a lot of other Christie's, especially earlier on, where the mechanics are at the expense of the credibility and people are doing crazy things, but it's all very Rube Goldbergian and head-turning, if not head-spinning, but when we sit down to think about it, we're like, hmm, that doesn't seem real. So this is the flipping of that, which I don't have a problem with. But again, Five Little Pigs and and then there were none managed to do both. To me, that's why plot mechanics is the weakest category. I think you came out on a six for this, Catherine. 
I did because I don't think there's anything really to dock it for. And as usual, I, I we're pretty much in agreement about that. I was coming out at a five or a six, but I'm perfectly happy with a six. I would then argue that plot credibility in that these characters are real and they're popping off the page. And we'll obviously talk more about that when we get to characters. But I never disbelieved anything that any character said or did, no matter how outlandish or at times even melodramatic. It, it all felt earned because she set up those characters so well. Right. And, you know, even the fact that more than half of the book is red herrings, none of the red herrings are unbelievable. It's actually quite believable. There's a sense of frustration, right, that Inspector Grange and Poirot have that almost feels grounded. <laughs> right. I would give plot credibility a nine. In- yeah, me, no, you know what? I, I agree. Okay, great. Then let's go on to series characters. I will quote Christy herself in her autobiography. The Hollow was a book I always thought I had ruined by the introduction of Poirot. I had got used to having Poirot in my books, and so naturally he had come into this one, but he was all wrong there. He did his stuff all right, but how much better, I kept thinking, would the book have been without him? And David Suchet himself even admitted to the awkwardness of Poirot being in this story in his book, Poirot and Me. And he says they did the best that they could, but that you can still feel the awkwardness in the adaptation. Here's the thing, though. Maybe it's because I was so primed to hate Poirot in this novel because I knew all of that coming in. I didn't totally hate Poirot in this novel. No. And also, here's what I would say about this. Uh, I don't actually know how the novel works without Poirot. You could just have it be amongst the family. Then you really just do have a psychological novel that has no mystery in it if you do that. I think he is useful to the extent that we know him and he can act a little bit as the reader surrogate, right? Yeah. Because he's also looking at the same situation being like, what exactly is wrong here? Which if you remove him, you're not getting that. And I mean, again, that might have been okay too, but I don't mind Paro's presence in this. I don't either. And I think you made a similar point in Five Little Pigs because people sometimes talk about Poirot's presence in there as well. And you made the point there that we need to believe that the person investigating this crime is really good at what they do and almost superhumanly smart and perceptive. And there's so much else going on that if we had to take up space getting to know this detective and believe in his or her abilities, it it would be a distraction. But, you know, it's interesting. Christy had the same issue with Poirot and Sad Cypress. She also regretted inserting him into Sad Cypress. You know, though, I would say that Sad Cypress, I felt he was more extraneous in Sad Cypress than I did in The Hollow. Yeah. Part of it is the awkwardness of the way that he is introduced as having this country house, this cottage. It's bizarre. I know. Had, had he just been staying with somebody else down there and they had right. invited him over, that would have somehow made that less odd. Why couldn't right. he have just been there? Because even the blocking of everyone having to go up to his cottage and then him coming down, it's all a little awkward. I, d- I well, don't really understand it, why she did a, that. In a weird way, it's another one of the red herrings because they spend so much time talking about the various pathways. And really, ultimately, the pathways to and from the hollow don't matter at all. It's true. I actually agree with Curran that he's not as... <laughs> flamboyant or as energetic a presence as he often is, but that's also the Poirot, Sands, Hastings, and Ariadne Oliver issue, which we get in these middle books. Ariadne Oliver, where are you? She's coming soon. Don't worry. 
I still always appreciate his presence. And I think all of that extra legal justice at the end felt very Poirot. His thing about unreliable witnesses. He's quoting Tennyson, which is totally on brand for him. He loves his poets. I know. And his conversations with Henrietta are all good. Yeah. And I actually think that Henrietta needs an interlocutor outside of the family. And also, I think that you can attribute a little bit the muted quality to the fact that he starts off annoyed. He's annoyed about being in the country. He's annoyed that he thinks that they are doing something to him at the hollow. You have a little bit of a subdued Poirot because you have an annoyed one who's out of his element. You don't have jovial Papa Poirot, but that's appropriate well, given you, the fact you, that he's being thwarted although, at every step. <laughs> although you get a little bit of that Papa Poirot in the final scene with Henrietta. Yeah, you do. He's he's avuncular with her, for sure. Did you come out on a, a seven? I could do a six if you I, wanted to do a six. I, I, I wouldn't go lower than that. I can't do a seven, but I could do a six. Yeah, I can do a six. Okay. All right, then let's talk about standalone characters, which is a category where obviously this book does quite well. And I actually just want to quote Laura Thompson, recent Christie biographer on this score, because she is a big fan of The Hollow. She says that The Hollow is charged with an unusual depth of feeling and its central characters feel peculiarly alive. And then talking specifically about Henrietta and John's love affair, she says it's intense, moving, and utterly believable in its unsatisfactory nature, which is such a good point. And she says the character of Henrietta is possible the most interesting in any of the detective novels. She is rendered with authorial sympathy and insofar as this is possible, the story is seen through her eyes. She is not Agatha, but she is an Agatha who might have existed had she retained her emotional independence and her looks. Oh, harsh. I, I know, which is a little, a little way, way harsh, harsh. Ty. Way harsh, Laura. You know, one of the things that John says about Henrietta is that she's a very lovely and satisfying person, which happens to be exactly what Stephen Glanville said about Agatha herself. We talked a little bit in Our Death Comes as the end episode about how Laura Thompson theorized that John Christo was based off of Stephen Glanville, who was a very important person in Christie's life in her middle age. And he, you know, had been a friend of Max Malowin's, but then he became very much a friend of, of Agatha's. And it was his idea to do Death Comes as the End. And he provided all this research for her. And they were just very close. And she always said about him the same thing that everyone seems to say about John Christo, which is he had this zest for life and he was more alive than other people. I mean, to be honest, she uses that cliche a little too much for my liking in a lot of her books, but it's apt here. It's one of the more powerful versions that we come across that very much seems to be taken from Stephen Glanville, who himself carried on an extramarital affair. And Christy knew his wife and she knew his mistress and she had a great appreciation for him, even though she obviously realized he wasn't perfect. Thompson even theorizes that the relationship between Henrietta and John is what could have been if Christie ever were to engage in an affair with Stephen Glanville, which of course she didn't do. No one is saying that she did, but um, they, you know, had this sort of connection and um, she really did have a lot of affection and he perhaps even well, you know, platonic I mean, love for him. And you can feel that in her portrayal of the character. Right. Well, and I mean, Henrietta, it's made clear, at least from Henrietta's point of view, that she has an intellectual romance with John. You know, yes, there's a sexual relationship too, but she has this sort of intense intellectual romance with him. 
Yeah, absolutely. So again, the mirroring of that relationship. I also thought that Henrietta reminded me of Amias Crail in obvious ways, getting consumed by her work. She's another artist who just, it just overtakes her and, and she has to go through the process of creation before she can come back into the living world. Henrietta's love of driving, that is very much a love that Christy herself shared, as we've talked about. And she writes, she much preferred to be alone when driving. And that way she could realize to the full, the intimate personal and enjoyment that driving a car brought to her. And then right after that passage, it's it's when Henriette is going down to the hollow and it's just her alone with her thoughts. She sort of records this moment that Henrietta has on her own. And suddenly one of those moments of intense happiness came to her, a sense of the loveliness of the world, of her own intense enjoyment of that world. She thought, I shall never be as happy again as I am now. Never. You could just feel Agatha drawing on her own spirit and life and insights. And Henrietta is popping off of the page. Like she is just truly is one of her best characters. Yeah. I mean, she, you know, is fascinating. And, you know, John is supposed to be this absolutely brilliant doctor, but at no point is Henrietta supposed to be less than him. Professionally, intellectually, Mm -hmm. and morally. I mean, neither is condemned for their extramarital affair. No, no. Except, you know, Henrietta gets a little bit what John doesn't in that Henrietta is also on top of everything else, a very empathetic person. Right. No, this is true. She has to be a good person on top of that, (laughs) I think, whereas John just gets to be totally selfish. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's a little bit of a woman's thing that if you have to have moral failings in one area, you're going to compensate for them elsewhere. Somewhere else to be, quote unquote, likable. Yeah. But still, Christy's doing really well on that score for something written in 1946, you know? And the thing that I think is fascinating is you can hear echoes of other pieces of Christy in these other characters, even Gerda, the passage in which she's talking about being slow and getting scolded by her family growing up. I felt like Christy was actually drawing on her own experience there as well. You know, she talks about in her autobiography and others have talked about the fact that she was in fact the slow one of her family. Her older sister Madge was the sparkly one. She was the intellectual and she was the life of the party. And Agatha was always younger and actually slower. I mean, believe it or not, she felt like that at least when she was younger and even into adulthood. It felt like Christy was drawing on something very real there too. Because Gerda, even though she's not a very quote unquote alive character, also pops off the page. I mean, I I felt immediately like I knew exactly who Gerda was, which helps when she has this turn where this woman who's just engaged in blind devotion, when she realizes that that devotion was hollow, turns around and says, oh, well, now I have to murder him. I mean, that is quite a turn, but I believed it. Speaking of also, though, writing in facets of people you know or their swimming pools (laughs) (laughs) you know one of the most interesting things also about Henrietta is the fight that she has with John which is over the statue the worshiper and he basically says to her what if she realized what you had done and Henrietta basically says well she wouldn't I made her a different sculpture and He says that's so cruel and condescending, basically. And Henrietta says, well, no, she'll never realize. She got a statue that she was really happy with and that made her happy. And I got what I wanted. I needed a muse because I am an artist. And it's a little bit of an Amias Crail thing, right? Oh, yeah. It's total Amias Elsa moment. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, she tried to mitigate 
the sort of artist selfishness, right? It's mm-hmm. an interesting thing. How do you utilize somebody like a real person in art? And, you know, should there be guilt over it or not? Well, and it's also the ultimate irony is that Gerda had her turn where she she went from slavishly devoted wife into murdering wife based on the fact that she saw her husband having an extramarital affair with a woman. But her husband... she has been having an extramarital affair for a long time. With the woman who is out of all of the people in this family that she hates. It's the only one who's nice to her and the only one who she likes. So that affair has been going on for months and months and months, and she was just clueless about it. And if she had learned about that, it would have been just as devastating because it's not even who he was having the affair with. It's the fact that he was having an affair. So Henrietta is doing a horror thing to Gerda, even just by virtue of the relationship she's carrying on. Obviously, John Christo himself, based off of Stephen Glanville, is an extremely strong character. Those three, Henrietta, Gerda, and John Christo, and also Lucy and Gattel, are very, very strongly drawn characters. Some of the others are a little weaker. David could just be cut out of the novel and it wouldn't matter. Sir Henry, Lucy's husband, is a little one note slash barely even there for me. But yeah, I kept forget. I kept forgetting. Like I'd be reading, and then he would just show up. Especially like when Inspector Grange comes to the house. It turns out Sir Henry's in almost all of those scenes. But he would. But he would like say something, and I would have this moment where I thought, "Wait." Where did he come from? I know. And Veronica Cray is good. She does what she needs to do to service the plot and move it along. She's not a brilliant character, but she's not a bad character either. She's a little bit of a caricature slash stereotype. Do you know who she reminded me of? This is a silly reference, but I suspect many will appreciate it. You know, Charlotte Corman Strikes X in the Corman Strike books? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what I thought of immediately. I was like, oh, she's Charlotte. She's crazy. She's the crazy ex who just wants wants him for herself. (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes sense. Although I think that Veronica is actually almost a little more pathetic. Yeah. There's a little bit of Arlena Marshall in Veronica Cray, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I think in general, these are just amazingly strong characters. And I'm going to argue for another really high ranking. I kind of feel like this deserves a nine. I had it as an eight, but I could be convinced to a nine. Then consider yourself convinced. Okay. (laughs) All right, then let's talk about tone and setting. You know, like I said, I think that this is some of Christie's best writing. Those scenes in the beginning where she's setting up the characters and she has all those little quirks with various objects like the kettle and the leg of mutton and Henrietta's clay bust were really memorable to me. They stood the test of decades worth of time. And I just think that she's writing at the height of her powers here. And we should note also that while the story takes place at the hollow, there's another estate that is just constantly referenced in the story, which is Ainswick. And that is the family estate where Lady Lucy grew up and Edward now resides since he inherited it. And it's obviously Ashfield. <laughs> Christie's childhood home. Like we've talked before in, in two different short stories where Christie made up a fake estate called Anstey's. 
And this just seems to be more of the same. Like she had such a deep and abiding love for her childhood home. And apparently some of the descriptions of Ainswig actually match more with Greenway than Ashfield. And she obviously had a great love for Greenway too. She, the, the woman loved her real estate. We know that for sure. But I think that you can feel the love of the land and the idea of having a home, not only in the descriptions of the hollow, but more importantly in the descriptions of Ainswick, which we're never actually at, which I think is really interesting because the hollow is well rendered. We, especially that pool and the various lanes and pathways leading to and from it. But the house that really stands out is the one that we never actually see because everyone's constantly thinking about it. And I think that's really interesting. We hear more about the trees though, at both, I think, than we hear about anything else at the estates. We do. It's sort of the idea of existing in the house. I mean, here's the quote. The white, graceful house, the big magnolia growing up it, the whole set in an amphitheater of wooded hills. And then the final turn in through the gate and up through the woods till you came out in the open. And there the house was big and white and welcoming. I can see Edward sitting in this house, falling asleep in an armchair by the fire. I think she rendered Ainswick particularly well and in a particularly unusual way um, and a poignant way for her, knowing that Ashfield was the home she had to leave, you know? That's one piece of the setting and tone. I think we would both agree that for tone, for writing style, this book is one of the better ones. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I am not as high as you on setting, probably. But tone, for sure. If we're considering writing style tone, then yes, it's tremendously well written. I was at a nine for this one as well. What was your score? Uh, I had an eight. I can be convinced to do an eight. And now we are at the stuck in its time category. And we have this extended sequence involving Midge. And we actually didn't even mention Midge when we were talking about characters, because other than this sequence, Midge is also pretty well drawn. She's an interesting character. She well, in comes- fairness, she's actually decently well drawn in this sequence that we're about to complain about too. She is. It's just so repellent that it's difficult to engage with this sequence. And then I think in a larger way, the character. Well, I mean, the problem is that it's not even coming out of the character's mouth. Right. Well, first of all, I should note that we get out of the mouth of Mrs. Crabtree in the beginning of the book, the N-word. But that is out of Mrs. Crabtree's mouth. So if that were the only incident, I would be saying zero deductions. We do also get two references by Lady Lucy much later on in the book to a dessert called N-Word in His Shirt, which... (laughs) I did Google that, unfortunately. Yeah, so this is what it is, because then she describes chocolate, you know, and eggs, and then covered with whipped cream, just the sort of sweet a foreigner would like for lunch. So we get a little wham-bam there of, of, of discomfort. But again, that's the actual name of a dessert. It's unfortunate, but it is a proper name. So I think I would, even with that, still be saying zero deductions. But there's this sequence in which Midge, who works at a dress shop because she is a poorer relation here, she is their cousin, but she doesn't have as much money as them, and she refuses to accept their money. She stands on, on principle and works at this horrid dress shop, and she hates it. And she's in particular hates her boss. And because this murder has happened and she can't go back to work, she has to call up her boss and tell her that she's going to be away for a few extra days. Here is a little bit of what happens. It was all just as unpleasant as she had imagined it would be. The raucous voice of the vitriolic little Jewess came angrily over the wires. What was that? Myth hard cathol? 
A death? A funeral? Do you not know very well that I am shorthanded? Do you think I'm going to stand for these excuses? Oh, yes. You are having a good time, I dare say. Christy writes in a lisp. Right. Putting TH for some S sounds here. And this just continues, and I'm not going to read it all out because it goes on for a while. It's over a, a long page. time. Yeah. And Edward comes in and he's very concerned about the fact because Midge just seems so upset about having to talk to this woman. And this is how Midge describes her boss to Edward after the phone call is over. He says, I hope they were decent about it. What is it like, this dress shop of yours? Is the woman who runs it pleasant and sympathetic to work for? And Midge responds, I should hardly describe her as that. She's a Whitechapel Jewess with dyed hair and a voice like a corncrake. And there's another reference, too, because Edward goes into the dress shop and he sees Midge at work and he's horrified that she has to be so meek and submissive to these horrible clients. And he sees the boss and he's just horrified by what she looks like. Oh, and then, all- and, then, and then also he gets out of a conversation with her because she sees another customer coming in and like God only knows how much she loves money. It's more of Christie's persistent and just ultra tedious anti-Semitism in these novels. But we've seen seen the dress shop owner as this character before. Yeah, we have. She clearly thinks it's funny. This reminds me of that casual racism as comic relief that we came across in Death in the Clouds, which was also not through a character. It was very much provided by the author as narrator. That's totally what we have here in this sequence. This is not coming out of Midge's mouth. It's very casual. It has nothing to do with anything. It's meant to be funny. It's meant to be diverting. And it's repugnant. What's really interesting is that this was published, obviously, after World War II. This is 1946 now, so after the horrors of the Holocaust. And per Janet Morgan, who was Christie's um, first major biographer... This is what she writes. It was only after the war, however, that Agatha's publishers and then just her American publishers began to receive protesting letters. Apparently, at the time, it was this novel specifically that so many people found offensive, and I can't say I'm surprised. And per Janet Morgan again, after this book, Dodd Mead were given permission to alter any references that they needed to. I'm going to be really honest here. I think that to a certain extent, of course, Christie stuck in her time, but this also seems to be somewhat of an egregious insertion into a book given when it was published and one that people at the time found offensive enough to write letters about. Well, I mean, you know, we always go back like many, many, many moons ago to the fact that Parallel End House ends on such a off-putting dose of... Mm-hmm. anti-Semitism, but at least that anti-Semitism actually does connect back into the plot. <laughs> this is just, I mean, that's not any excuse at all, but it does actually go back to having some connection to the plot. This has no connection to the plot. Yeah. And we sometimes get little painful bursts of anti-Semitism in books that just sort of punctuate the text and you go, eh, you know, and then they're gone. This one's a bit pervasive, though, because it's not just the sequence. Edward goes to the dress shop. It's part of who Midge is. It's very much part of this character that she's stuck in this situation with this horrible boss, and then she's rescued from it by Edward. And I actually feel pretty strongly about this. I think it deserves three deductions. This is one of the rare, admittedly rare, instances where we can't give her the benefit of the doubt. And it's somewhat pervasive. That's fine. Okay. It is now time to tabulate our score for The Hollow. 
So we've got 6 plus 9 plus 6 plus 9 plus 8 minus 3 for a grand total of 35 points, which is a quite high score for this novel. Putting The Hollow in a tie with Murder on the Orient Express. And I believe that we are in agreement that The Hollow should go just below Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, of course. Okay, so The Hollow is currently our number five novel. Just to go through our top ten as is, we've got Five Little Pigs, and then there were none, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, Murder on the Orient Express, The Hollow, Death on the Nile, The Murder at the Vicarage, Peril at End House, Cards on the Table, and The ABC Murders. That seems like a really solid top ten to me. Yeah, I agree. And I'm happy that The Hollow is at number five. I think that it's excellent. I think the writing is just very, very strong. It's not perfect. It is neither Five Little Pigs nor And Then There Were None, but it has a lot going for it. Yeah, and it's a little bit different than a lot of the other novels. And that actually, you know, I think has a merit in putting it up into the top 10 too. Well, that brings us to an end of this rather long episode, but you know what? This was a novel that we loved, so sometimes we just can't stop talking about the ones that we love. Join us next time for a Miss Marple episode. Yay! Yay! Do you think we're going to get some dark marble in this? I campaign? think we always get some dark marble. If you have anything to do with it, every time we cover Miss Marple, Catherine. Well, you know, I try. (laughs) Um, We are covering another Miss Marple short story, specifically The Perfect Maid. Mm -hmm. What a perfect Miss Marple title. So we're very excited for that. We would love to see more of you on our Patreon site. So come and visit us at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine at Brobcat, our Facebook page is All About Agatha, and our Instagram handle is at All About Agatha. Please do rate and review us. We love getting those ratings and reviews and hope to get a whole lot more of them. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.